Welcome to the Ready, Set, Mindful podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Bishke, and I am so excited to have our guest for today, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. He is a TEDx speaker. He's a mindset coach. He's a podcaster, has the podcast, amazing podcast, uh, Octanon Verba. He's a, an author and has been in this game quite a long time. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where this conversation goes. Welcome to the podcast, Marcus. Carrie, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. I want to just get right into it. I know from listening to your podcast and the, the bits and pieces that you've shared about your story and kind of how you used your traumatic injury to move past post-traumatic stress and into this post-traumatic growth, kind of what that has looked like for you and how that's shaped you. Do you mind starting with a little bit of, of your story? Absolutely. It's, um, we can take it different places, but just some preamble before my actual uh, injury, I suppose. I was 38 years old. I was in chiropractic school and Life University in Atlanta, married, killing myself, trying to work a lot of hours, trying to take a lot of doctorate level course hours as well. And I was doing all that in hopes of looking for my future with my wife, putting out a shingle, serving my community with my hands and giving back. <clears throat> but as your audience will know, there's what we plan, there's what we fear, and then there's what actually happens in our lives. For me, because I focus so much on the future, I wasn't focusing on the present, which is I wasn't present to my marriage. I wasn't present to my wife at that time. Eventually, our marriage fell apart, mm -hmm. and that was a big kind of punch in the face. Not long after that, my biggest male role model, my great uncle, he passed away. So those that was a one-two punch that really put me on my ass for a little bit and made me take a look at what am I doing and why am I doing this? At, my great uncle was in Vietnam. He was in special forces. He was the one that taught me about honor, respect, humility, field craft, gun, marksmanship, you know, safety, all those things. And I wanted to go down his path as best I could, but at 38 years old, I didn't know if it was possible, sure. but I went and figured, okay, they're going to stop. They'll pause my school. If I go active, if I go full time and I have no kids, I have no wife at this point. I have nothing stopping me. My window is now. And if I'm going to try, I need to try now. Went and talked to the recruiter, asked what the age was to get in. He said, 35, asked me how old I was. And I said, 38. He says, well, come and talk to me. And I was like, with all due respect, Sergeant, you know, don't waste my time. If this isn't going to happen. He asked me if I was smart. I'm like, I'm talking to a recruiter at 38 years old. Do I sound smart to you? But what he meant was, how would I do it in ASVAB? And at that point, I had a degree in human biology already, taking a lot of doctorate level courses. So I crushed that. And then for my age range, I destroyed the PT test. I maxed out both of those. And he said, well, you're exactly what the army wants if you would like to do this. And he says, you get to choose whatever your MOS is, whatever job you would like. <clears throat> and I'm like, I already know what I want to do. I'm going to do what my great uncle did. I want to be a lifer. I want to be long range reconnaissance, special forces, ranger, all the things. And he's like, Anderson, you don't get it with these test scores. You can do anything you want. And he was talking about, you know, security, you know, all the stuff that we can do that would translate really well into the civilian sector. And I was like, with all due respect, Sergeant, this is what I want. And if I don't get this, why am I even here? 
mm-hmm. back and forth for a while. And then he eventually slid the, um, the release form over to me and said, it's your life, man. And six months later, I'm off the bus, F4 Benning, getting yelled at by guys younger than me, competing against guys half my age. But that's literally what I needed. Started doing martial arts when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of philosophy came into my life. Okay. My, my grandfather is the one that gave me my name, Marcus Aurelius, but I had no clue who this person was. So I started to try to read meditations around 11 or 12, mm-hmm. whenever my head had no concept of who this person was. And for those of you that haven't read meditations, Marcus Aurelius was really just reminding himself today, there will be difficulties today. There will be adversity in your life understand that now start to accept it now so that you can transition and change what you can understanding if it's endurable to endure it. But when the, when that book starts off and he says, from my father, I learned this from this person, I learned this. It didn't really make a lot of sense to me, but when I was there at that, at that bookstore, I was actually able to walk back trying to find more books by him. There were no more books by him. I was asking the people that worked there and this is, I'm almost 50 now. So this is before the interwebs. But um, I said, is there another book by this guy? And they were like, no. But as I was walking away disheveled, I saw a book that had this, these Chinese characters on it, which reminded me of the characters in the martial art books that I was looking at when I was studying martial arts. And it was the the Tao Te Ching. Mm -hmm. And so I opened it up and uh, there was a passage that said, if you continue to sharpen your blade, it will go blunt. And even at 12, I understood that. I, I didn't understand it completely, but it made sense. If you overfill your cup, it will, it will spill over. And so these kind of things helped me. And it actually became my gateway to understand Zen, Taoism, eventually Stoicism, Aristotle, all these things that are, in my opinion, pragmatic forms of philosophy. Because the philosophy is only as useful as the person that can apply it but also the philosophy should be something that emboldens you and there shouldn't be a whole lot of dogma or a lot of limitation within it, whether it be a philosophy, religion, a belief system, whatever that may be. And that was kind of my beginnings of those understandings. And that actually is what helped me kind of get through infantry school was four months. And back then it was still challenging. Yeah. As, as we would say, they were, there was not a lot of, you weren't able to pull out a card and say, Hey, drill sergeant, I don't feel like you're respecting my emotions right now. We didn't have those back then. And their job was to weed us out, to weed out the weak, to break you so that you didn't, because what happens if, if I'm not strong, if I'm not resilient, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, when I get into the heat of battle, I do not have the luxury of being philosophical when I'm under the stress of adversity. Right. And if I can't do my job, other men die. So it's a lot more than just me. It's a lot more than just, oh, I wasn't able to make the 25 mile ruck march. It's like, no, you didn't bring the equipment that we need to make this assault a success. And now everybody's compromised. So it's a much different kind of mentality. And you were saying that you have a lot of athletes. So if we're on a team, sometimes we focus more on ourselves instead of our teammates. Mm -hmm. But if we can actually look at why what we're doing is important, how this will affect our teammates. And then again, even from a professional standpoint, okay, if I sign this multi-million dollar contract and I'm not serving my team, how is this going to affect my other teammate, how will it affect their capacity to give to their family, put food on the table, give them security, et cetera. So when we understand that there's a lot more impact on our choices and decisions, whether it be to be hydrated, to, to rest, to recover, to train, 
that gives a lot more gravity to everything that we do in this life. Wow. Well said. There's so many things to extrapolate from what you said, but I think it is such a big deal to pull back and to see the bigger picture. And I think sometimes, you know, it's really challenging for people to step away from their emotional brain and step away from that for a second and see the bigger picture, that larger impact of how your ability or inability to handle a situation or something hard, something that makes you uncomfortable, how is that impacting your team on a, on a bigger stage? You know, that's the big piece of the puzzle that I always try to communicate to the athletes and the clients that I work with. So it's like, okay, how can we move past this emotional brain and get our rational brain more activated? We want that part of our brain driving our decisions for most of the day, right? We don't want our emotional brain. I like to call it the toddler brain. If that part of our brain drove all day, we'd be running red lights, like missing workouts. It's not where you want to live. You know, it's important to acknowledge like, okay, it's there, but I want to be in my rational brain most of the day and really have that driving the bigger picture so that you're able to step away from from the, those emotions, see how your decisions and your responses in the moment are going to impact your day and your world and the people around you. It, it's everything. I always tell people that emotions assassinate the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's where, and that's where we get stuck, right? And so, as an athlete, as a warrior, as a, as a leader, as a father, as a wife, we have to understand that everything that we're doing is going to impact people around us. But also understanding that we have to have this capacity to detach. Mm-hmm. So even if I'm thinking about this, winning this competition or or surviving this altercation, that's fine. But if that's all I focus on, it will completely wrap me up. My emotions will probably get into the driver's seat and it will slow us down. But I have to have the ability to say, listen, that's my end goal. But right now, swinging this sword to the best of my capacity is the most important thing. So being present in this moment, Lao Tzu says you don't build a wall, you lay one brick perfectly. Mm-hmm. To the best of your capacity, you're completely present in this moment the best brick, the best mortar that you can do. You have it level. That's all that matters. And then when you're done, you do that again. Mm-hmm. So instead of worrying about where the wall is going to be, the wall eventually takes care of itself if we take care of those steps every single day. But for my, many of us, it's very easy for us to lose sight of that. And that's the beauty of meditation and anything else, right? It, it allows you to have the capacity to be present right now to this moment, which allows you the detachment to actually succeed in whatever the endeavor may be. Mm. but if we don't have the ability to do that it's easy for us to get caught up in the emotions and the semantics of it and for those of you that believe that you already had this nailed go back and spend time with your family on the holiday absolutely yeah give yourself an opportunity to truly test what that looks like and how you show up to those situations that can test you a little bit right that's it or friends that you had before you were where you are now or where you're wanting to go and understand that those people will really, they say that our parents push our buttons so well because they're the ones that actually put in the buttons in they the first place. The yeah. yeah, that's it. So it's like, that's why they know all the ins and outs of you. But at the same time, that's why I feel the diversity is a gift because it just reflects onto us. It's truly a mirror. It shows where, puts a light on those things that we want to keep dark. It shows us where the chinks in the armor are. And anything that is pressure on it. That's where we start to find where the weakness is, where the ability to get stronger can be. And if we don't do that before the heat of battle, often it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. And wanting to know a little bit more about the adversity 
we all have different adversities that we've encountered throughout our life. And I, I love the piece of your story where you joined the military at, at 38 and you had this uphill battle and did the age waiver and all of these things were kind of stacked against you and had to have sergeants that were half your age telling you what to do. And, and I want to talk a little bit about your recovery process through your injury. If you could talk about that adversity and how your stoic practice kind of transformed your relationship with your emotions and what that looked like. Absolutely. So I got through infantry school. Um, like I said, I was able to get through it relatively unscathed by comparison. Many younger guys, even guys half my age, breaking their ankles or shoulders, dislocating joints, all that impact. There's a lot of pressure on you, right? There's a lot of weight on our backs. If you're jumping out of airplanes, whatever it is, there's going to be repercussions. And if you're not prepared, it's easy to get injured. And once my mindset was strong enough, like after the first couple of weeks, when I actually believed I could get through it, that's what allowed me to get there. And of course I trained my ass up before I got there. It's not like I was just a, a fat civilian that just happened to jump into the to infantry school. Sure. Um, having said that, I got stationed at, up, at upstate New York at 10th mountain. And that's uh, at that time is the most deployed unit in the history of the military. And that's a uh, Ford drum um, 20 miles south of the Canadian border, cold, extreme weather. And that's what we did. Um, negative 20 degrees all the time, always snowing, always wet. And you were always in the field, always training in warlike conditions. And as soon as I got there, we were preparing to deploy immediately. So as soon as I got there, they were like, hail guy, pack your trash. Cause we're going to be in the sandbox soon. <clears throat> so as soon as I hit the ground, I already, there was this intensity, there was this intention behind everything that we did, which you can say what you want about the military, but on the combat arms front, there is a certain kind of intensity. There's a certain kind of mentality. There's a certain kind of resilience built into everything that you do from the morning, from the moment that you wake up to go to PT in the morning to the minute you're done with cleaning your weapons or going to the field or doing whatever. So that's where that warrior mentality comes in and being around warriors that have been deployed multiple times, being around people that wanted to be in that unit, that wanted to actually be a part of it really forced you to up your game a lot. So for me, I thought that infantry school would be the hard part that I would get to my unit. It would be easier that was not the case. Um, basically a year after I got there, they kept pushing our deployment back. And to give a little bit more context, I was always having numbness in my hands and my feet. Wasn't sure what that was. I just assumed it was because it was cold all the time. Mm. But one morning I actually woke up and I had ruptured a disc in my neck and that completely paralyzed me from the neck down. So I was trying to roll out of bed and my neck would move a little bit, but the rest of my body would not articulate. So being a you know, former almost chiropractor, I knew that there was something going on, but I thought that it was going to be something that was short-lived, just an isolated incident, because especially for an old guy like me, in the military, you are always going to be in pain, always. It's just a varying degree of how much, varying degree of will it impact. Like I'll be in pain all day as long as I can do what my job is. Because we were talking about athletes as well, right? For many of us, our identity is wrapped up in our capacity, in our job. And at that point, I just become a team leader. So I've just been given my, my team. So I have to go above and beyond. I have to lead by example and more. I have to outwork everybody there right. to get that trust and respect to be able to, again, we're going to be doing this soon. So that was my biggest motivation behind that. Waking up paralyzed being sent to the hospital, being told that I was never going to walk again. Um, that was scary as hell. There's no two ways about it. And 
once I was at the hospital, they did the MRI, they put me under, like I'm getting operated on within hours because at that point I'm having a hard time breathing. So this is beyond just my hands not feeling good or whatever. Like I'm to the point where I'm going to just suffocate because my body's not going to be able to actually respirate the way it's supposed to because of that. And that was a big slap in the face, but then, Hey, we're going to the surgery, put the anesthesia on me. I count down from hundred. I get to 98, wake up in the ICU, uh, confused, not sure where I'm at. What little movement I did have was completely arrested because now I'm in a neck brace as well. Cause they put a bunch of metal on my neck and now I'm still paralyzed and I'm looking around as best I can. The nurses tell me to relax and welcome back to the land of the living. I find out later from the surgeon that I flatlined on the table twice during the surgery and they were afraid they weren't going to be able to get me back. So he had a very congratulatory tone, but at the same time telling me, Hey, you get to live the tell the tale, but this is what you're left with. It still didn't feel like I'd actually won anything. I felt like I'd lost the battle, frankly. Sure. Sure. And so what did you do with that past the point of the hospital? What did your mindset look like from day to day following that? I mean, because obviously in any transition or in any situation where we do have adversity, there's always that emotional brain that wants to kind of kick in and be like, this sucks. What does my future look like? And then all the negative self-talk and and self-sabotage and pity parties and all that kind of stuff. There is always that temptation of the emotional brain. And so what did that look like from a mindset perspective of you having that ability to talk yourself out of that and assassinate the emotions with, with the truth of what you'd be doing day to day? And that's the thing. If I could tell you a fabrication and say, oh, you know, from day one, I was fine. And I knew I was going to get over this, but uh, (laughs) the real thing was the first week was just all denial because I'm like, in my mind, well, they told me that I, I died and overcame that. I should be able to overcome this walking thing. Mm -hmm. But after a week there and it not, because the, the surgeon said, listen, if you were going to recover, it would have happened by now, because once we take that pressure off your spinal cord, that impingement should be opened up just like a water hose. But if there's damage done to the hose and you step on it and now there's a leak in it or there's a break in it, now we're going to have some trouble. And they were like, and there was a lot of damage done to your spinal cord. So that's not what I wanted to hear. I kept telling everybody I was going to be fine. And then once they put me back in my unit, then it was obvious that this was not something I could just walk off or act like it wasn't there. And uh, the thing about philosophy or any kind of mindset stuff is it sounds like a bunch of flowery bullshit when you're in the middle of it. Yeah. Hell yeah. You can say all the mantras or all the, you know, embraces suck or, you know, good or adversity is a gift all day. But if you're the one that's in it, it doesn't feel real. And it's easy for people to have that kind of attitude when they're not in the face of it. So when we see so many people now that have false bravado, it's very easy to be brave when there's no opportunity and there's no chance that you're going to be in danger. You can't have courage until there is genuine fear. So for me, for months, I was, I went through everything. I went through denial. We, there's the five stages, right? There's denial, there's anger, there's the part of bargaining, which in a lot of ways is just a glorified form of denial. Mm-hmm. And then there's depression and then you bottom out into acceptance, but it doesn't happen that easily. It's denial and then anger. And then you hate this idea that you may have to actually accept this. So you go back to denial again, or go back to bargaining, hoping that if you can plea with a deity or a belief system or whatever it is that you talk to in your mind that you'll really promise this time that you won't 
do whatever you thought you were doing incorrectly to justify the, the behavior. And I eventually went to that place where it was anger for me because it was all the times I had, I had a lot of resentment towards all the opportunity that I'd taken for granted, all the people that I hadn't told I loved, all these physical things that I hadn't done because I assumed that this stuff happened to other people. I assumed that there was always tomorrow. I believed that I would, could always do it another time. And in this life, that's not how it works. They say you don't know what you got till it's gone, but the reality is we know what we have, but we assume that we will always have it. Absolutely. And in this life, everything is in flux. Nothing is consistent. And even if you feel like things are going well, if your business did well last year, if you had a great year last year, or if you had a bad year last year, it doesn't matter. What we do now, the victories that we have tomorrow based on what we do today. So we can't rest on our loyals. I can't just be satisfied that I was a TEDx speaker in 2017, or I had a best-selling book a couple of years ago. There's other things that we have to do. For me, I had to get to that rock bottom and realize that the anger wasn't serving me. So I could either be a pissed off veteran and play the victim for the rest of my life. Or I could say, if this is all that I have, if this is the reality, what do I do now? And that's what I had to do. So for me, the thing that switched it around for me was understanding that in Zen, they say, take yourself out of the equation. And in Stoicism, they talk about this as well, right? It's, it's still on you, the responsibility, but it's not about you because people are self-absorbed by nature. Mm-hmm. I had to find something to be grateful for because I didn't have a lot of love around me at that time. So the opposite of anger is love. The closest thing that I have was genuine gratitude. And for those of you that are like, oh, gratitude, here he goes. <laughs> I'm not talking about that bullshit gratitude that people are pushing. I'm not talking about the fake gratitude. I'm talking about the real gratitude, which means you find gratitude in the things that other people don't. You find gratitude in genuine adversity. You think of the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life. And you say, what am I supposed to be learning? What am I missing? What am I overlooking? What is this forcing me to find? And for many people, that means no matter how horrendous their life is, They have to ask ourselves, am I continuing to fall back into this cycle? Mm -hmm. So the the gift in that adversity may be simply to get out of that cycle, whether it be a toxic relationships, drugs, whatever it is, figure out where it is and then decide, am I going to allow this to continue? Because what we don't change, we're choosing. And what will happen is these things that we don't change, these excuses, these things that we're going to do tomorrow, that eventually becomes our entire existence. And then we get to a place where we don't have the opportunity or the capacity or frankly, the wherewithal to try to do these things. So whether it be a job or ask somebody out on a date, do it now. Mm. That place for me came to this notion of, did anybody benefit from me being hurt? I kept saying, no, no, no. But when I took myself out of the equation, like they say in Zen, I realized that if I'd have been in Afghanistan when this happened, if I'd have been in a hot zone Mm -hmm. for every one man that is injured, it takes two men to pull him to safety which means that my team would have been compromised. Another team would have had to cover down. Another battalion would have had to come in to support us. A helicopter would have had to fly into a hot zone to come get me. That's almost 50 to 100 people whose other lives would have been put in harm's way had I suffered this injury in Afghanistan. And I believe that I would have suffered this injury anywhere I was, whether it be in domestic US or anywhere in the world. So with that belief, I realized, wow, I'm lucky. Not that I'm hurt, but that nobody else was hurt. And and that may sound insignificant to you, but if you're in a bed for four months 
and nothing's been positive in your life, that is a huge breakthrough. Yeah. And I remember saying, wow, I'm lucky. And I remember feeling like it was coming from somebody else. Mm. Like this wasn't me saying it. Like I could step outside my body and see myself saying it. Broke down in tears. I became grateful for the bed that I couldn't get out of. I became grateful for the people that care of me because at that time I wasn't very nice. Mm. I was kind of difficult to be around because I was bitter. I was projecting classically, right? Mm-hmm. I became grateful for the room that I may never leave. And after like about two weeks of genuine, true gratitude for everything, everything, I started getting a little bit of feeling back in my left hand. Mm-hmm. Now it wasn't a lot, but it was the beginning. And that was when I started understanding the power of genuine gratitude, not the fake gratitude, not writing it down and not believing it. If I write down three things that I'm grateful for, like we talk about in in all these studies, but I don't believe any of it, I'm literally subconsciously holding myself back to where I won't believe in something. So I'm doing more harm than good. Mm -hmm. So I have some of my clients, I'll just say, listen, if you've had a bad day, when you're brushing your teeth, figure out the thing that pissed you off that day, figure out the adversity. And most of them have enough distance now where they can be truly objective. Right. And now they can be like, that really wasn't that big of a deal. I, I talk about an adversity scale. So from one to 10, 10 is the worst thing you've ever been through. One or zero is heaven on earth. And ask yourself right now, if we want to have that perspective on a scale of one to 10 or zero to 10, where is this really? So if it's that person that was rude to us, the person that cut us off in traffic, if we're really honest, it's usually a two or a three. Mm-hmm. And that helps us say, okay, in the grand scheme of things, this really isn't worth worrying about. It's not worth wasting my time. I don't need to have this, you know, road rage, you know, fantasy that I'm going to follow this person and go beat them up or whatever. In the end, that's not going to serve anybody. And also, if we have the capacity to have that, that gives us genuine empathy. So I don't have to appreciate what the person did, but I have to appreciate why they did it. Mm. So just like with trauma, we, we look at the, the hardship, but we look at the trauma, we look at the source of that. And then we can understand how to have pragmatic empathy, meaning I can understand why this person did it. I don't like that it almost hurt me, but I'm grateful that it did not. And that becomes the cycle that we can use. And we can put that formulation pretty much in any arena that we enter. And that will give us genuine gratitude, genuine perspective, true empathy. And when people hear the word empathy, Empathy and empty are spelled the same or similarly because we have to empty ourselves of expectations, desire to speak, desire to fix this person, understanding what's going on with them. But more importantly, it's very important to have that just on a day-to-day basis to understand what this person's intentions are. Mm. If I can feel that this person is feeling this way because they want to be a victim and they want me to, to feed into their narrative, I have to decide now, am I going to do that? Or am I going to call them on their bullshit and say, How's that working out for you being a victim? How's that feel? Mm-hmm. There will be people that will try to one up you with their adversity and talk about how bad their day was, yeah. talk about how horrible their life is. Mm-hmm. And those people, and we've all been there, but we have to understand it's like, this is toxic. This is not serving me. And if it's a person that you love or care about, you may challenge their narrative and say, is that really true? Right. Or does that just make you feel good? Or does it become your identity? And those are the people that love to talk about how much they hate Monday mornings and love to talk about the weekends and how quickly it flew by. And that's not a way to really to live. That's just existing, in my opinion. There's so much to dissect there. I love where you went with gratitude and not just 
this superficial surface level of bullshit gratitude, really feeling this from an authentic level. Sometimes things seem too far away to be grateful for because we're in this space of, you know, martyrdom or victimhood. And we just, it's fun to have the pity party. You know, I was with an athlete the other day and it was like pulling teeth, trying to get this person to find something to be grateful for. It's like nothing like my body. I'm going through this ACL surgery and like this sucks and this sucks. And like, how do your earlobes feel? Like, What's something that just you don't have pain in right now? So sometimes you have to start at this really, you know, low level baseline to build up to this level of gratitude that we're trying to get to. So I just start with what's going okay right now. You know, what doesn't suck all the way or what is pain-free? And then you can kind of start to open that door a little bit. And now you've, okay, cool. Now we've planted a seed and now we can build on that a little bit. But at first, when you're going through adversity, you know, exactly what you said, it's going to be too far away or feel too far away for that person to really relate to it. And so there's this idea of toxic positivity of if you're feeling shitty, just say, no, I'm awesome. Like, I feel great. And it's like, no, it's not, that's not relatable. It seems too far away. It's fake. It's inauthentic. And so finding something that feels real. So what does feel okay? What part of my day, like is, is going okay. What part of my body doesn't have pain. And then that little seed will grow into some authentic gratitude. And for you, you saw how you planted that seed and watched the feeling in your fingers come back. Like that's some cool, real shit right there that, that happens because that door was opened. You know, it's, it's, it's so powerful. So I, I love everything that you said there. It's, it's the foundation of everything that we do, frankly. I mean, if w- without those things, we're sort of just in the ether, we're reacting and it's really difficult to find the gift of adversity when you're in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. You often have to have perspective. So again, I challenge you, if you can have hindsight now, so you had that athlete was talking about their ACL being blown out. I guarantee there's another skill set that they've been wanting to work on that they didn't have the capacity to do. People that were complaining about the pandemic and what's happened, we have to adapt to these things. We can try to judge them as much as we want, but you have to understand that all events are neutral. They have no meaning until we give it a meaning. So if I assign this meaning that this is something that's negative for me, guess what? The emotion evoked, the thoughts that follow, and then the actions that may come from that probably are not going to serve me. But if I can say, listen, this is neutral. How do I choose to view this? How do I choose what lens am I putting this through? And if I can decide that this is something that is neutral, then how am I going to act? I'm not reacting, I'm responding. And again, Viktor Frankl, right? Between that, in that gap, stimulus and response. That's where our power is at. And again, being able to have gratitude that makes that gap bigger. Meditating makes the gap bigger and it may only be half a second, but that half a second can be the difference between making the right decision or flying off the handle at somebody. And it, it keeps us in that place where now we can truly, people talk about balance. There's really not balance. There's only blend. Hmm. Even if you look at a surfer who's balanced in in time, they're constantly fluctuating. They're constantly being aware of what's going on and they're constantly moving. Many people, when they think balance is a static thing and I'm on this tightrope and I can't move and I can't change anything or I'll fall. But the very reason that they fall is because they want to be solid. They don't want to move. They don't want to adapt. And everything in this life is adaptation. And if you can understand that, take the emotion out of it, stop judging whether this is good or bad and just saying, what do I do now? no shit. What's the truth now? And what can I do? Again, denial. 
I can't believe I got a flat tire. I can't believe this is going on. You can literally hear it in people's narrative. Mm-hmm. This is, ah, Bob, I'm going to be late for this thing. All this is stuff that you're talking about, this preamble, other than accepting it and now moving forward. Until you accept the reality of whatever's going on, you have no opportunity to actually change it. So again, the people that are complaining about the pandemic, the athlete that was injured, there's probably a big stack of books that they've wanted to read. They've always had an example of what not to do. They don't do it. This athlete, there's probably something they can do with their upper body, a skill that they can work on, the narrative that they talk in their mind, film, whatever it is, there's something that they can look at that will make them better. And now when that ACL catches back up with the rest of their body, they have that area that used to be a weakness. And now it doesn't have to be a strength, but at least it's no, no longer as much of a weakness as it was. And that can be the separation between victory and defeat. Absolutely. Yeah. I love what you said there. I use a lot of mindfulness based um, exercises in the work that I do with athletes too, and really getting them to see the power having a mindfulness routine and, and how that can be so impactful. And that's one of my favorite quotes that you mentioned by Viktor Frankl and creating space between stimulus and response. It's what life is all about. Everything is an action and a reaction. And what are you going to do with that response? There's so much power in that. I'd love to hear what the architecture of your day kind of looks like in terms of habits and routine that are you know non-negotiable for you. And what is some of this mental fortitude? How, how is it applicable in your day? So a lot of people will talk about routines and those are fantastic, but people have to have routines that they can follow, that they can be consistent with. And I've had some people that say, well, I'm not Tony Robbins. I don't have the luxury of three hours of all these things, or even like a Hal Elrod miracle morning type thing. That's fine. But for me, what I end up doing is I have, I wake up in the morning. I'm, I have just some present meditation. I don't have, and this is pre input. And I just let whatever's in my mind fade away. I'm not focusing on anything. I'm just kind of focusing on my breath. It depends on what I'm doing that week. Sometimes I use Josh Waitzkin's idea of the most important question. Mm-hmm. And that is, if you guys don't know who Josh Waitzkin is, you need to look him up. For me in the morning, what's the most important question for me after I meditate and become present? And then it's physical. It's about being outside walking. I just finished 75 hard. I just finished. Yeah, the, I'm in the middle of it. So yeah, there you go. And I just <laughs> finished the live hard program. So I've had a year of it. And that's really given me that ability to, to be physical. So a 45 minute walk outside, rain or shine. Usually my wife will go with me as well. And that's an opportunity to build resilience. You're checking the boxes, you're getting outside. I get to converse with her. She's an entrepreneur as well. So we get on the same page. We clean the slate. We know where we're at, what we got going. It's going to be a big day today. That's fine. Maybe there's a day we get to go have lunch. Those are great. But meditation, having some sort of presence, most important question and the physicality, that's everything. If I can read right after that, great. If not, I do it later on in the day. But what I'm trying to tell people is stop trying to learn a bunch of shit that's not going to serve you and find something like if I said, what are you not doing that you should be doing? Or what are you still doing that you shouldn't be? They're different questions, but they come to the same conclusion, which is if you don't know what you should be doing, you really don't know if you should be working out or not. You really don't know if your diet is in the garbage or not. Really? You do. So whatever that first thing is, cut out your sugar or go work out or go for a walk or do 10 pushups, any of that stuff, right? Just begin. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be perfect. Masashi says that everything is difficult when we begin because we don't know what it is, but everything that we've ever learned in our life has been difficult the first time we've done it. So don't say, oh, this isn't for me. It's like, it just takes time. And then see, listen, for some people in journaling is great. Mm-hmm. 
For some people, guided journaling is great. There's a difference. For some people, having that most important question gives them intention. For some people, they just journal like, I don't know what to write. Maybe that's not what what helps them. Maybe the meditation is what helps them. Maybe the action first helps stimulate them so that they can get these ideas. But in the end, it comes down to using what will work for you. The three things that I give my CEOs and all my like performance clients, it's this is the mindset that makes them work. One is the power list. Andy Priscilla talks about it. Yep. You're, you've done 75 hard. He talks about an Arte syndicate all the time. And that's those things that need to be done that day. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a list of to do things, right? It's literally like, these are the two things that if I move these, move the needle today with these two things, yes. it will move me forward in my business in my life and my relationships and my physicality. Right. And you get those done. The second step is ask yourself right now is what I'm doing, getting me closer or further away from these goals, whether it be a long-term goal, whether it be a goal for the power list. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is to be completely present. So you're, you're a coach, Marshall Goldsmith, right? He's the most, next to Jerry Colonna, in my opinion, he's the best coach out there. Before he went out of private coaching, he was charging, what, a quarter of a million dollars per client. Insane. Mm-hmm. And people would come to him and he would have like a large list of questions. And for a lot of people, if I give you a dozen questions and ask you to self-audit throughout the day with every one of those questions, it's going to seem overwhelming. The answer often will be no. Like, did I do my best to make the best of this relationship? Did I do my best to be present? Did I do my best to meet somebody new today? Did I, did I do my best to do whatever it is? That's too much. And what it does is it beats you down. So for me, with a Taoist idea, with a Zen idea, with a Stoic idea, I say, listen, the grand scheme of all those things is, do I know what I should be working towards? Can I self-audit at the end of this hour and say, did I get closer or further away? If I didn't, I pivot immediately. I don't judge. I don't beat myself up. I don't go to a negative tirade or narrative that says, well, see, I'm not disciplined and I'm always not disciplined. This is why I'm not very good at what I do. And this is why I'm not happy with this. That's not serving me. I get back on track. And then I ask if I'm being present. If I'm present, that helps me in everything that I do. Monotask, don't multitask. Multitasking is bullshit. Here's the other thing. If you have a CEO that's worth a multi-millions, right? He loves doing that job because he's getting vindicated. He's a workaholic by nature. He's being supported by culture because they see how successful he is. Yeah. But then he's not at home. But if he's at home and he can't be present, He's losing this opportunity that he needs to be the reason why he's doing it is his family, his wife, his, his kids, right? If he can't be present there, he's robbing himself of that joy. If he can't be present at work with this resentment that he's not at home, again, what's he doing? He's literally slowing himself down. He's got one arm tied behind his back intellectually, physically, emotionally, spiritually. That doesn't serve him. So by having these ideas and saying, listen, after I'm done with this thing, Instead of saying, oh, I'm going to get on my phone and be distracted or check a bunch of email that is unnecessary, I can say, okay, what's the next thing? Power list. Okay, I check that first thing. The next thing is this. Okay, great. And I attack it. And I give it everything that I have. And I give it all that presence. And then I have people attack things in small blocks, 45 minutes, and then stay off of it. And that gives them that chance to really be focused and give them urgency at the same time. And I know that was a lot, but I I just want to give you guys as much as I can. People will pick parts of this that they like, and then they can start using that stuff, right? Yeah. A few actionable things that I definitely can get behind. Mood follows action. Let's take thinking out of the equation sometimes, especially if we're 
in this space of adversity and, and having such a hard time, you know, me as an athlete have definitely been in some dark places and in the midst of transitioning and retiring from my sport professionally, like that's a lot of identity crisis, a lot of dark thoughts in those transitionary periods. What are we, you know, what are we doing? And, and so for me, I've always known that with sport and with movement and with social activities, those are some things where I, you know, I thrive. I know that my mood has always shifted when I do those things. And so you just do the next thing, just take the walk. It's those micro things that um, are, are really helpful for athletes to be aware of. Like, let's just take, take the emotional brain out of it for a second. And I'm just going to go on a walk and we're just going to see where that takes us. And then, Hey, guess what? Your mood is going to be shifted after action is taken. So just get to the next thing. And I, I love what you said about the top two and filtering through what are just your top couple things that you can do that have the biggest impact feeling really good about those, those micro wins, and then just building again on having that confidence and, and building the next day. Okay. What are the next two things that I can do to build off of that rather than being totally disorganized and in a cluster and overwhelmed and having all of this anxiety from your crazy to-do list of things that you're trying to convince yourself have the biggest impact. There are always a couple of things that can make it to the top of the list you know, and just being in alignment every day, doing the things that are going to make you that better version of yourself. What's that 1%? What's something that I can do that's going to get me 1% closer to that partner that my wife thinks I am, right? Like, or that partner that my, my husband signed up for that better version of myself. And so I think those are all some really actionable tools that, that people can take away choosing, you know, what to apply and maybe what to disregard. Those are some great practices. And that's the idea. It's about these micro adversities, these small things that give us belief in ourselves. That's what 75 heart is, right? Understanding, wow, I can do more than I thought that I could yeah. doing the four by four by 48. Yeah. I'm doing more than I thought that I could. These are the things that, and, and what does it make us do? Again, we're present. We, we talked about the four by four by 48 before we started. I ran four miles every four hours for 48 hours straight, raising money to stop human trafficking and child pornography. Right. And the goal, and I'm doing that next month with actually with Robert Sykes, he and I are doing it together in person, the keto savage. So that's going to be amazing. That's awesome. That's cool. We'll be there in person and we'll be getting sweaty and stuff. But the whole thing is, if I look at the whole thing and say, I have to run 12, four mile stints, that that's too much. What you have to say is I'm putting on my shoes because after 26 miles of running and it's like two in the morning, I have to get out and it's raining and it's sleeting and it's cold. I don't want to do it, but I just get up and put on my shoes, just get up and get out the door. The other thing that saved me social media, there's a lot of evils, but for me using social media, using Instagram, I knew that if I put it out there, I knew that if I put it on my stories, it forces a timestamp every single time. Yeah. Jocko, the 4.30 AM timestamp. It's the accountability. That's it. So I've got crazy accountability. So if I don't feel like doing it, it has to be done. I know that I've already made all this noise to get people to try to get money to help. If I can't even lead this thing that I'm claiming that's important, why would I expect them to give any money? Right. So that's the idea. And that's what forces me to be in that place to, again, it makes me level up. And here's the thing, no matter what I've been through, I've I've been through things. We've all been through hardship, but what am I doing now? What is the adversity that I'm seeking out now? What adversity am I overcoming now? Because yesterday didn't matter right now is what matters. And then if we choose these things and we force them in our, our slots, then we have to get there. So for me, I finished the 
the Live Hard program last year, the, the whole year program of that, I did that last week. I finished it, gave myself a little bit of time now, and then I'm getting ready for the Seal Fit Kokoro event in 90 days from now. It's a two-day event. There's no sleep, and they're literally trying to do to you what they did to Navy SEALs. So it's water. You're out there in the in the surf. You're doing the runs. You're doing the rucks. You're doing Murph. You're doing all the things that they holding the boats, all the stuff. And that's what I need to elevate because I can't serve people better. Like we talk about four by four by forty eight. That made me level up. And now I look down at what I used to do. I look down at where I was and it looks antiquated. So even in business, when we look back at our old business model, it's like, oh my God, how did that even work? (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's what, that's what I did. But what else did I find by elevating myself? That's what inspired my wife to begin 75 hard. That's what inspired my daughter to do 75 hard because I was leading by example that whole time. What else did it do? If I have a client and now they're saying, I don't want to go out and do this 10 minute walk. They can see what I've already done. They can see what I did that morning. Yes. Mm-hmm. So what they're telling me, I'm just looking at them. I'm like, really? Like, you just don't have it in you to, to go outside for 10 minutes. <laughs> like Andy Priscilla's face, like every day, the thought of, of having to encounter his, his face, like, did you really complete it? I was like, I, I did, I swear. So if anyone's done 75 hard, you know, oh. the picture I'm, I'm talking about, but it's yeah. that accountability piece someone that's like really i've walked the walk like i've done it like are you showing up that's it and are you choosing to show up tomorrow as well right and that's what we have to do so meditation is great motivation is great but having this routine built in where you can take both of those away and now i don't have to make this decision again i have it on paper this is what i'm doing this is what i'm doing this is what i'm doing so again failing is not an option Choosing to fail is not an option either. So that means I just do the next thing. I do the next thing. I put on my shoes. I go for that run. I don't worry about the next 48 hours. I worry about this four mile run and I get it done. And I don't make it bigger than what it is. And for me, when I was doing the four by four by 48, I would actually ask myself questions. I would ask myself Jerry Colonna questions. In what way have, have I been complicit in these things that I claim that I don't want? Mm. So running for 45 minutes in the dark alone, thinking about that, you have, it's, it's an elevated form of motivation, right? It's an elevated form of meditation in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And then when I got done, I just jot down whatever I got done. And then the next time I went out, you know, what's the most important question now? All these kind of things that really give you this opportunity to reflect. I was also fasted when I did it. So I didn't eat the entire time. I'm a low carbohydrate guy. So my body just ran on the fat and the ketones that I had. So I had a keto brick one hour before my first run. And I had a keto brick the first thing after I was done with my last run, but other than that, I was using water and breath. So we're capable of much more than we give ourselves credit for. And if you don't push, you'll never know. And here's the other thing. Adversity doesn't care. And it's showing up soon for you. So you can either choose now to plan for it, to be strong, because if you're not planning for it, you're literally planning to let it catch you sideways. And then you have the audacity to be surprised when it gets you. It's like, don't be surprised. You know what's out there. You know what you need to work on. Start working. Stop trying to memorize everything else. I'm glad that you're listening to this podcast or my podcast or read any of these books, but stop just consuming and start putting it into play. Anything that you learn, any wisdom that's acquired that is not utilized is the equivalent of ignorance. Mm -hmm. 
So start putting the stuff into play. You know what you need to be doing right now. And if you don't, I'm sure you can reach out to, to one of us and we could give you an idea, but there's plenty of things out there to do. Yeah. Stop doing that. Start putting it into action. Action nonverb, right? Actions are not words. Deeds, not words. That's what does everything. And for most people, the answer that they seek is found in the adversity that they're currently avoiding. I love it, Marcus. Application. There are plenty of uh, golden nuggets, plenty of tangible practices that you can pull from this podcast to apply. So pick something that you know speaks to you, that you're vibing with, that is manageable, that you can integrate into your routine. Which one are you going to choose to apply? It's something so simple as starting with your breath, starting with a few reflective moments in the morning, a walk, things that are free and accessible um, to you. So there's no reason that you can't start applying today. So awesome, yeah. Marcus. Where can people find you? Often on Verba is your podcast. Where can people find you if they want to hear a little bit more from you? Absolutely. They can just go to my website, MarcusAureliusAnderson.com. It's just my name. I know that's a lot. So if you're a person that's on socials, LinkedIn, Marcus Aurelius Anderson, Instagram, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. I also have accounts on Twitter and Facebook, but most of my traffic comes from Instagram and from LinkedIn. If you enjoy this, my TEDx talk is called The Gift of Adversity. Just go to YouTube, put in The Gift of Adversity. I'll be the first guy that comes up. And my book's called The Gift of Adversity as well. If I know that a lot of people don't read books anymore, but I have an audible version as well that has bonus content. And if you enjoy what we're talking about here, Octanon Burba, I've had some guests on there that, in my opinion, were great simply because it gave me a chance to. The, one of the authors that impacted my life is named Stephen Pressfield. He wrote The War of Art. And he, he talks about resistance with a capital R. And he's the reason why I capitalize adversity with a capital A, because in his mind, resistance is this thing, this force that is stopping you from trying to become better. So he says that there are two, our lot there, we all have two lives, the life that we live and the unlived life within us between those two lives is resistance. So he says, writing is not hard, but setting everything up getting the schedule to where you can sit your ass down in the chair and actually start bleeding onto the page. That's the hard part. And most people won't do that. Everybody wants to do something. Everybody wants to begin a workout. Everybody wants to ask that person. Everybody wants to create a business. Just start, just begin. It's going to be ugly. You're going to fall down, but it's ugly for everybody. Again, Musashi, everything is hard at the beginning, but if you just continue on, you don't have to be the best. You just have to be the last. You have to be the last one that continues to walk when everybody else has given up. You need to be the last one willing to continue to move forward when everybody else is trying to be realistic with whatever it is they're doing in their life. And frankly, if you're listening to us right now, you're probably not realistic. I don't want you to be realistic. Realistic is just code for mediocrity. Mm. Yeah, man. I love that. Yep. Those are some, some deep insights and there's, there's so much again there to, to kind of pull out, but I think, you know, pick one thing that you can do today and mood follows action. So just do something micro and tangible that you can wrap your, you know, that, that you can do and, uh, you know, get started today and aligning with that better version of yourself, you know? So cool. Thank you so much for joining me today, Marcus. I loved our conversation and I'm looking forward to following your four by four by 48 and hopefully talking to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Carrie, for the opportunity. I appreciate you. Of course. Okay. Take care.